flip over to 1 Corinthians. We're back in our series. I really don't even have to preach. It doesn't feel like uh, uh, after all that. But uh, we're going to just continue on in our series. And as you're turning there, one of the, uh, we're in chapter 4, I don't know if I said that, but one of the intriguing challenges of being a pastor in a post-Christian country like Canada is explaining your job to someone who is outside the church. Some people already know what a pastor is, so it's quite easy. Plenty of others have enough exposure to the church that they have some sort of idea, even if they have the wrong idea of what it is. They kind of understand the ins and outs. But sometimes you find yourself talking to people who have absolutely no idea. I remember saying just the other week, I was talking with a gentleman uh, on the streets of Drumheller, and I shared with him that I was a pastor, and he never even heard that word. He said, pasta? Like, like spaghetti? Um, <laughs> And that's my new title. So, but working out what you say next in those scenarios when someone doesn't know is a very helpful exercise. It really shows you what you think Christian ministry is. I have friends who describe Christian ministry or pastoring as helping people explore spirituality. The writer Eugene Peterson tells of a colleague who simply says, well, I run a church. And he kind of cringed at that. That's kind of a horrible, because pastors don't run the church. We serve the church. And he was horrified, and he wrote about how it distinctly left an unpleasant impression on him. And in a North American influenced culture like we live in, many pastors like to use words like leader, director, or even executive, drawing on terminology from the business world to explain the rule. And the language is helpful because it's, it's clear to people who are not believers what you do, but it runs a major risk of letting the corporate world reshape the Christian church, Christian ministry in its own image. And some churches have taken that way too far. But when we come to our verses today, why I say all this is because in our verses we see a refreshing and an important definition of leadership from Paul's perspective, and it's extremely important that we understand it. So let's look at verse 1 together, which says, oh, I don't know if I have this on. This is how one should regard us. And the us that Paul is referring to here is the church leaders, all church leaders of varying degrees of authority. And I want to be clear right at the beginning of this sermon that the Bible is pro-authority. I know that sounds weird in our day and age when authority is always questioned and resisted, but the Bible is pro-authority and it's pro-leadership. And so the Bible says that all of us should be submitted on some level to the authority around us. But there is good authority and there is also bad authority. And in this chapter, Paul is talking about the authority that is found within the church. And today we are going to see four principles of good authority authority. And if you're here today and you're a leader, then these are the four characteristics that you should aspire to be known by. And you'll be saying, well, I'm not a leader, so I'm just going to go home now and get early to the lunch. But, uh, well, it's twofold. How does this apply to you if you're not a leader? Well, first, these are the traits that you should be looking for in the leaders that you exalt here in the church. You want to see these four characteristics in your elders and in your deacons and really in any type of leadership role here in the church. Because churches have this unfortunate tendency to elevate leaders who are high on charisma but are very poor in character. And the Bible says, I would rather have people who are strong in character than strong in skill. Because God will bless the character rather than the skill. 
We, we, we elevate those who are good with numbers even if their character doesn't add up. We elevate those who are great business leaders or community leaders, but their private life is a mess, something that we would never want to aspire to or follow. In church, we must put that to an end. But even more importantly, you might not think you're a leader, but every single one of you in this room, you play the role of leader in somebody else's life at varying, at varying stages. Maybe you're a parent, a mother, maybe you're a grandparent, or maybe you lead a life group here at the church, or in your work, you work with the kids downstairs, or you help in the youth ministry. Maybe you run things to a certain degree at your job, like you're a shift leader at a restaurant, or a manager, or a director in your company. I could go on and on. Maybe you're a teacher, wherever you are. But in all these places, you are leading others. Which means what Paul is going to say in these verses about himself, it applies to all of us, and we should strive to have all of this in our leadership. So with verse 1, we see the first two characteristics laid out for us of a leader. He says, this is how you should regard us as servants of Christ. So a Christian leader is a servant of Christ. A Christian leader serves you might be a leader of others. You may even have authority over them, even to fire them. But your fundamental identity is that of a servant of Christ. Even if you are leading in the secular world as a Christian, you do all things unto Christ. Your life is not divided up between Christian Aaron and secular Aaron. Everything is Christian Aaron. Every area of your life is your faith lived out, which means a couple of things practically. A servant doesn't execute his own will, but he follows the will of another. Everything you do is in beat with Christ. It's an interesting word that Paul uses here for servant. He's not using the typical word in Greek for servant, which is doulos, which is actually supposed to be translated as slave, but we like to use friendly language, so servant. Instead, he uses hyperstas, which means uh, under rower, that he is an under rower like on a boat. So he says, Jesus is the captain of the boat, and my job is to row and beat with him. What does it mean to row and beat with Christ? Well, when I lived in Chatham, I used to compete every year in something called dragon boat races on the Sydenham River in Wallaceburg. And we'd get in these long, skinny boats. There'd be 22 paddlers, well, sorry, 20 paddlers. There'd be one drummer, and there'd be one steers person. And what was the drummer for? He, yeah, he'd keep the rhythm. He would bang, bang, and you were to row every time he hit the drum. Now, if you were to start rowing to your own beat, you're so tight in there that you're going to start smacking paddles with the people in front of you and behind you, and your ship doesn't go as quick as you want it to go. And the church is the same way. We are to row and beat with Christ. We are to row with his preferences all the time. When we allow our preferences to take over, when we allow our agendas to take over, or we follow somebody else's preferences or agenda, then we are out of beat. And we start smacking paddles. That's when people start getting hurt. That's when the church isn't moving anywhere, but it stays stagnant. We need to be in beat with Christ. Asking constantly as a church, as an eldership, as a deaconship, what God wants from this church. Not what I want, not what I think is best, but what does God want? Where do you want this church to go, Lord? Not where I want it to go, but you. 
But secondly, being a servant of Christ means that I, or whoever the leader is, sees the group of people that they are leading as Christ and not their own. You see, I love you as a church. I want to serve you every way I can. But you're not mine. You're Christ. And keeping that at the forefront of my mind helps me to make decisions based on what will give you more of Jesus. And sometimes those decisions are not exactly what we want, but it's exactly what we need. God is the owner of this church. It doesn't exist for me or for my purposes. I am quite frankly dispendable. You can get rid of me and the church will keep going. I have to look at this church not through the lenses of what is best for Aaron, but what is best for Jesus. And if what is best for Jesus goes the opposite way of what is best for Aaron, guess what? We go with Jesus, not with me. One of the best examples of this is from the life of John the Baptist. He, at one point in John the Baptist's ministry, Jesus was starting to get more popular than John. And his followers came to him and said, doesn't this bother you? Like you spent all this time building your platform, building your outreach, getting your name out there. And now Jesus comes on the scene and he eclipses you. He outshadows you. And what does John the Baptist say? He says, no, no, no. I must, in, sorry, he must increase and I must decrease. Every leader should have this mentality. And then he compared his role of leadership to being like the best man at a wedding. Traditionally, the role of a best man at a Jewish wedding is to support the groom, to help plan the wedding, to make sure the wedding happens as it's been laid out. In our tradition, the best man always kind of stands behind or beside the, the groom, and his role is to deflect all the view to him. Right, and then the groom deflects it all to the bride. Um, but he's looking at the ba- he's looking at the groom. If he was out there flirting with the girl walking down the aisle and starting to make it all about himself, that'd be an issue, right? He wants the best man. Sorry, he wants the groom to look good. That's why he is the best man. He must decrease so the groom would increase. And just like the best man, who is fine with being invisible. We as servants of Christ must also be fine with that. We too should want to decrease so Christ may increase. I read about a very famous pastor this week or last week when I was writing this sermon about uh, 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 in the 1800s. His name was Charles Simeon. He built this major church and God raised up in his ministry a preacher of the word of God. And he was a good preacher. He was actually better than Charles Simeon. But the problem was That Simeon wasn't ready to retire. But he went into his prayer closet and he came out going, this is better for the church. So he stepped aside and allowed the guy that he discipled to take over the church. It was was one of the hardest things he's ever had to do, he said. And I read that and I thought two things. Wow, he swallowed a major pride pill there. He put it away. He realized this church is not about Charles Simeon. This church is going to keep going forward when long after I'm dead. This church is Christ. So it doesn't matter if I'm the main speaker or not. Because God is being glorified and lives are being changed. And the second thing I reflected upon is, man, I really hope that I have that same attitude when the time comes for me. The question is for you, though, if you are assigned a leadership position, do you see your leadership position as service? Do you see your leadership role as a place of power over others to benefit yourself or a place of service where you get to serve others on the behalf of Christ to benefit others? If you're a boss, do you see it as a place in which you can lift up your employees on behalf of Christ 
They might not be Christians, but you are. So you treat them as Christ would treat them, to help develop them, to help bless their lives. If you are a parent, do you see yourself as Christ's tool to grow your kids in his purposes, ready to open your hand and let them go wherever he wants to go? I'm sure if we ask Jason and Sheila, letting both their kids go across seas to serve, is, that's a hard thing to do. But are you willing to do that? The point is, any leadership position must be seen first and foremost as an act of service to Christ, where you see yourself as a tool in the hands of God, which leads us right to Paul's second point, which is a Christian leader is a steward. Write it down. I know all you complain that I changed too fast. The Christian leader is a steward. Okay, we're going to the scripture now. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of of God. The mysteries of God that Paul's referring to here, remember, is not whether Adam and Eve had a belly button or not, okay? They probably didn't, but that's okay. It's a mystery. But remember to a couple weeks ago, the mysteries of God here refer to the gospel, that Jesus Christ came. He made this clear through chapters 1 to 3, that God, what he's been doing all along that's been veiled is that he sent his son, clothed in fresh flesh, to live the life you couldn't, to die the death you should have, and to rise again with salvation for all who believe in his name. So Paul says, I didn't write these mysteries. If they're confusing to you, if, you, if they offend you, I didn't write them. God did. I'm just passing them along. I'm just the mailman throwing them into your mailbox. Now, Paul doesn't use the mailman analogy, but he does use one that's similar. He uses the word steward here. And in the Greek, this literally means household manager. It might be one of my favorite descriptions of a leader, and it might be one of my favorite descriptions of a pastor. Back in those days, large families would often have stewards that oversaw the affairs of the house. He would manage kids. He even taught kids. He would take care of the property. His job was to execute the father's will of that household. And here's what that means for me and you. Oh, sorry, for me as your pastor. I don't decide what the kids eat. I don't get to decide that. The father chooses that. My job, on the other hand, is just to prepare it into a meal. He says, here's all the ingredients. I just get to throw it together into a meal. In this book, the book of 1 Corinthians, and it's going to get a lot harder than it has been, the father said that we should eat this spiritually. My job is to deliver it to you. If you don't like parts of it, well, don't take it up with me. Take it up with him. He wrote it. Some people in the church have the mindset that the, that the preacher, the pastor, should just feed them Twinkies and Hot Pockets all day long. But for a pastor to be faithful, a faithful steward of the household of God, I must serve what the Father has given, whether it's tasty or not. Because the Father knows what we need to be healthy, and sometimes he gives you Brussels sprouts. And sometimes, I like Brussels sprouts, sometimes he gives you the veggie you don't like. So don't hate me, I'm just the steward. But the pastor or the leader, if you're a leader, you're often met with, a lot, met with a lot of complaining and criticism. In these next three verses, Paul will show us how these first two words, servant and steward, help us address the reality of criticism. Because if you're in any kind of leadership, high or low capacity, in the public's eye or not, you're going to often get criticism and you'll probably get a lot of it. And sometimes it's good criticism. And sometimes it's bad. So let's look at what Paul's thoughts are. A man who faced so much criticism, a lot of criticism throughout his life, and he's telling us, first, we must process all criticism, all complaining, through the lens of a servant and a steward. 
Paul says, because I am a servant of Christ, I'm his steward with me. It is very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Why? Well, verse 4. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So he's saying, hey, I don't know anything wrong with me, but if there is, the Lord's going to judge me. So it's going to get dealt with eventually. He's saying, at the end of the day, I don't answer to you, Corinthians. I answer to God. And if you are a Christian leader, you really shouldn't be surprised by criticism either. I mean, we are charged to represent Jesus in a world that murdered him. Right? Jesus says, I am the better you. I can do everything better than you. Look what they did to me. They crucified me. They killed me. And he's saying the same will be for you. Now, let me be clear. And this is a very important caveat. I welcome as a pastor lots of criticism. I welcome it. And many of you know that by now. I love to hear your concerns. I love to hear your criticism. I love to hear your complaining. It doesn't mean it's always going to be dealt with because sometimes, quite frankly, it's unfounded. But I want to hear it. It doesn't bother me. Sometimes it does if you say it mean. Be nice, you know. Be nice. (laughs) But why do I do this? Because I know that sometimes God uses friends to point out blind spots, and I know sometimes God uses adversaries to point out blind spots, shortcomings, or inconsistencies in my life. And I base this all on Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for the fool than for him. I don't ever want to believe the lie that I'm wise in my own eyes. What this means is I need the eyes of others, and I want to remain open to that type of feedback. Over the years of my life, I have had godly men and women speak into my life that have shaped me into the leader and pastor I am today. And we're going to talk about that more next week when we look at the idea of spiritual parents. And sometimes, I'll be honest, most times when they were having these conversations, they were not fun conversations. They were hard conversations. They were pointing out blind spots. They were pointing out inconsistencies. And they were warning me, Aaron, if you continue down this path, it's going to be hard. It's going to hurt. You're going to fail. And I didn't always receive it well at that moment. I fought it. I got angry. I rejected it at times. But I'm eternally thankful for the people who had the guts to have those conversations with me, to say the hard things to me. And we as Christians, we need that. And we can filter all criticism, both good criticism and bad criticism, Uh, uh, and receive it openly because we know at the end of the day, the only one that we are actually truly accountable to is is God. And God, guess what, knows your true self. He knows all your secret thoughts. He knows all your true motives. Everything is on display to him. There is no hiding from God. He knows it all. So we can filter criticism through that lens. Will criticism bother you? I'm sure it will. You're human. It hurts sometimes, especially if it's said poorly. But we need to try to give up managing everybody else's opinions because that's exhausting. You'll never satisfy everyone, okay? A lot of people just like to listen to their own voice, okay? You're never going to satisfy everyone. You need to worry about your performance to the audience of God, the audience of one. And thirdly, a Christian leader is only a surrogate. In 1 Corinthians 4, 6 to, 8, we, 6 to 8, we see this. He says, I have applied all things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor against another. For who sees anything different in you? 
What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all that you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. So just a reminder, uh, a little bit of context again. This whole chapter, this whole section story, chapters 1 to 4, Paul is dealing with divisions in the church. And he has said a lot of these divisions, if you remember, comes from the Corinthians being overly dependent on human leaders. Paul says that that needs to stop. We need to cut that out. Paul goes here, uh, Paul's goal here is for the Corinthians and for us today not to uh, think more highly of any human leader than we should. Earthly leaders are just temporary stand-ins for Jesus. Or even better, instruments in his hands. Ultimately, he and he alone is responsible for your salvation, not a human leader. Yes, God uses different people at different times in our lives, but he's always the one who is working in them and working through them. Think of it kind of like a hand in glove. If a doctor performs a life-saving surgery on you, and he does so by putting on a pair of latex gloves, it would be strange if you woke up from your sleep after surgery going, oh, thank you, glove. I'm so thankful this glove performed the surgery. Right? Wouldn't that be strange? Would you not be a little offended, Dr. Ilford, if someone did that? Right? Right? No, it was the hand that filled the glove. And the same is with God. I said this the first week, that there's always been famous people in the church. It's always been a problem since the early church. There were early church, uh, we saw this in the early church, that Peter, Paul, and Apollos were types of celebrities in Corinth. And I told you there's nothing wrong with you maybe feeling connected to one of these leaders or feeling indebted to one of these leaders because of how God has used them in the life. But I said the problem is when you don't eventually transfer the, transfer the roots of your identity from them and onto Christ. Or when you don't transfer your roots of your dependence on Christ from them. Uh, and when you have an overly large dependence upon an earthly leader, that's a sign of spiritual immaturity, not devotion. Earthly leaders are temporary, but hear this. Christ is eternal. Christ is eternal. So now looking at verse 6, we see Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit. And this is Paul bringing it all home in these last chapters. Two weeks ago, he says, who is Paul? Who is Paulos? Right? Who is Aaron? We didn't die for you. You weren't baptized into our name. You're not filled with our spirit. The Lord is your shepherd. And, and you can rest on that. And the rest of us as leaders under Christ are just temporary, dispendable stand-ins. What Paul has been saying and summarizing here in these verse, in verse 6, is that your identity should be rooted and needs to be rooted in Christ, because Christ is your hope, not me. Paul is basically saying, God wore me like a glove, and he wore me like a glove for a while, but the saving hand is his. Human leaders come and human leaders go. Some will disappoint you. Some will even disappoint you bitterly. And I want you to hear me. This church, Fellowship Baptist Church, will likely disappoint you at some time in your walk here. And I want you to hear this as well. I, at some point in both our journeys here, will likely disappoint you. If I never disappoint you, it's probably because you don't know me well enough. Right, Candace? Human leaders and churches are filled with human people uh, will from time to time disappoint, will fail, and sadly will hurt you. 
But our hope and faith and trust are not in humans, right? Our hope and faith is in Christ. And Christ will never leave you. Christ will never forsake you. Christ will never disappoint you. Put your roots in Jesus. Amen, church? There are two kinds of authority in the church. There is bad authority, and this is the type of authority where leaders use their power, their privilege, and their position to direct all the attention to themselves. And then there's good authority, where leaders use their power, their privilege, and position to direct people to Christ. And that leads me to my fourth point and final point, which is a Christian leader is a spectacle of suffering. He is a spectacle of suffering. We see this in verse Nine, he says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you, you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed, we buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. What a great description of leadership. Paul says to Christian leaders, you should expect to suffer. You should even expect to be a spectacle of suffering. Many leaders feel shocked and even scandalized when they suffer, like God has somehow let them down, let down his end of the bargain. They say, hey, God, I did my part. I went and did all this. I was faithful. I did what you asked me to do, and you were supposed to reward me. But instead, you gave me this? And Paul says, yeah, that's what we're called to as Christians. We follow after the footsteps of Jesus who came and lived perfectly, yet was suffered and died horribly for us. The Corinthians had, brought, had bought into something that Martin Luther, when reflecting on this uh, passage, called the theology of glory. The theology of glory is when you assume that God's presence on earth is always accompanied by earthly vindications of success. What the New Testament teaches, however, he said, is not a theology of glory, but a theology of the cross. And the theology of the cross is the one who was most perfect on earth suffered the most. And those who are endowed with the Spirit of God should expect to suffer like him. The Corinthians had the wrong view of what it meant to follow Jesus. It's not always sunshine and roses. Paul even gets, uses a little bit of sarcasm in these verses. You see that by comparing verses 8 to 10. He says in verse 8, You have already become rich without us. You have become kings. And then in verse 10 he goes, We, apostles, right, the leaders of the church, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you... You're wise, Corinthians. We, yeah, yeah, the leaders were weak, but you, you're strong. You're held in honor, but we are held in disrepute. And this is sarcasm because he's saying, hey, Corinthians, look at the leaders of the church under Christ at how we have suffered. We, the apostles who have suffered more than anyone, should delusion you of the idea of the closeness with God always equates earthly success. A Christian leader is called to suffer and shouldn't be surprised when it comes. I remember hearing a speaker share a story at a conference in the States that I attended. And there are so many stories like this. He was a CEO of a prosperous company. Money wasn't an issue for him. And then God called him to resign his high-paying job, to move his family across the world to the Middle East, and to reach Muslims for Jesus. So he did. He resigned. 
He sold his house. He sold almost everything he had. He went and got training through a missionary organization. And then he moved to the Middle East. And guess what happened? His son developed a serious medical condition. And this is what he wrote in his journal. He said, wait, Lord, this wasn't supposed to happen. Who said that before? I know I have. We're submitted to your will for our lives. We sold just about everything we have. We were disassembling the American dream, leaving everything and everyone familiar and moving our family from the medical capital, the Southeast, to a place with little to no health care and is hostile to the gospel to be your witnesses. And then you do this? Can you imagine the thoughts of unfair? God, have you forgotten us? But later in that conference, he spoke how this, he learned, was all a part of the process. How many of you are suffering right now? How many of you are questioning right now? It's all a part of the process. Through suffering or through the unfair treatment or through criticism, through the slander, through the difficulties, through the hardships, Christ is revealed in those church and you know him greater through them. As you advance in your obedience to God, he is going to open new doors for you. And then he's going to close other ones. But to get from one door to the next, it's always a hallway. And I love to say, you've heard me say it before, it's always hell in that hallway. It's horrible times in that hallway. Oftentimes when God promotes us, he uses and he uses us, we face pain and perplexity. But it's that pain and perplexity is what God is using to mold you so that you can't just walk through that door, but you can remain through that door and serve him faithfully as your servant. Amen? It's the pain, it's the suffering that's molding you, that's shaping you to be used at greater degrees for God. Philippians 3.10 says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Because the fellowship of his suffering is the only way to the power of his resurrection. There's a famous story about St. Dominic in the 12th century. And I think of him as an early reformer of the church long before Martin Luther. He visited the Pope, and the Pope was surrounded by all of his wealth, all of his splendor of the medieval Roman period. And the Pope boasted to St. Dominic, saying, Peter can no longer say silver and gold I do not have. And St. Dominic responded saying, yes, that's true. But then again, neither can he say, rise up and walk. And that was a mic drop moment long before microphones were invented. But as we see in the scriptures, his suffering is the way to the power of his resurrection. And in light of that principle, I have some questions for you as I close. Parents, do you ever feel wronged by your kids? It's part of the process of bringing salvation into their lives. Suffer patiently like Christ. It's his vehicle to the power of the resurrection in their life. Are you getting unfair treatment or pushback from friends that you're trying to help? The people that I've tried to help the most in my life were uh, were the ones that I were seeing blind spots and I wanted to help them and they wronged me and they hurt me in that process. And I was just trying to encourage them to do the right thing. And maybe that's the case for you too. Suffer well. Suffer patiently. It's part of his appointed process. Maybe you're being treated unfairly or you're wronged because of your faith. Suffer well because of the power of the resurrection only comes through the fellowship of the suffering of the cross. It's in the laying down of our lives. It's the laying down of our own preferences or whatnot that we will see the true power in our leadership and the true power in our influence over people.
Let me end like this. Look at Paul's, uh, he, he, he kind of puts a, a bow on it all of us, for all of us in verses 16 to 17. I'm not going to really flesh these out because they're part of my sermon next week. But he says, I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So what Paul is saying is, I don't want you just to observe how I lead. I want you to become these things, these characteristics that I've shared with you and your leading of other people, no matter what degree your leadership is, you should have these four characteristics. And my desire, and I would go to say I require all of our leaders here at Fellowship Baptist Church to be characterized by these things, to be servants, to model sacrifice, to be generous with their time and with their life, to model suffering well, and to be accountable. Leaders are not above their people. We are just the lead beggars pointing you where the bread is. Paul even says, I love it. He's saying, I'm no different than you as apostle. He's saying, because I'm an apostle, I'm not on a different plane than you. I'm not called to sit in a position of privilege. I'm not called to sit in a position of power while you're called to serve, you're called to sacrifice, and you're called to suffer. No, Paul says, I lead you in all those things. I'm at the front of the line in all of those things. And church, I'm not above those things either. Your elders are not above those things either. Your deacons are not above those either. We are to lead in the sufferings of Christ. God didn't design the leader for the spotlight. We're not designed to be in the spotlight. Rather, he designed the leader for the towel and the wash basin to serve others and to wash their feet like he did. If you don't have that mindset, then you have no place to be in leadership in this church. So church, let's commit together to raising up leaders like this, servant leaders, leaders in our church, but we don't just have to focus on the church. We can prepare men and women to be leaders like this in the business place, in their homes, and in our communities. Amen? Amen. So let me end by saying, some of you in our church have been hurt. You've been hurt in the past by spiritual authority. Maybe this church has hurt you. Maybe past leaders have hurt you. Or maybe you've been hurt in a different church. And I want to publicly say to you right now that I'm sorry. For a person to abuse their spiritual authority is a horrible sin. And I want you to hear this from a pastor. You should always feel free to flee from spiritual abuse. And we are committed as a church to help you. I know it's not easy to talk about, but if you've been hurt in the past, even if it's been by this church, come and talk with me. I want to begin this journey of your healing with you. I want to walk alongside with you because we are striving to be as healthy as we can as a church here at FBC, but that starts by making sure that you're okay and that you have room to heal. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I praise you, Lord, and I thank you. First and foremost, God, again, I thank you for our mothers. And I thank you, Lord, for our women in this church. Father, would you bless them and keep them and cause your face to shine upon them. And Father, I also thank you, Lord, for the words that are found in Corinthians. God, as we're challenged in our leadership, whether it's leadership that's in the spotlight or leadership that's in our home or just leadership in our community, to varying degrees, large or small, God, that you have called us to be servants unto your name, that you have called us to suffer well, Lord, that you have called us to put others before us, that, Lord, that you, Father, would fill us with your spirit to enable us to do this. 
God, may we all strive for this. May we look for men to fill our eldership who fit this characteristics, Lord. May, Lord, we look for men and women to fill our deaconship, Lord, that fit this character, characteristic, Lord, in other roles within our church, God, that they would exemplify what you have called us to be as your servants. Father, bless our time as we close in song. And, Lord, bless our celebrations as we celebrate our moms. Or, Lord, as we remember our moms, Lord, Father, would you be with us and comfort us. In Jesus' name, amen.